Let's pray together. God, I thank you that the words that we have sung are rooted in your truth. They're born out of your mind. They're declared from your heart. And God, I just pray that in this moment, that any of us who have been believing statements about ourselves that aren't true, I, I pray, God, that you, you would just, you would spark a spiritual light bulb over our minds that leads us into what you say is true. You say that every single one of us was your idea that we've been created in your image. You say that we matter to you, that we have worth and value and dignity in your name. And God, there are so many of us who've made choices this last week because we believe that we were something other than who you say we are. Lord, some of us made choices out, out of fear or out of shame or out of pride because we believed that we weren't enough or that we were damaged goods or that we didn't measure up. God, I pray that you would allow us to hear you speaking to us through just the fog and the confusion of life saying these words with crystal clarity. You matter to me. You are loved by me. You are gifted by me. You are called by me. And in me, you are enough. In me, you have enough. So God, I pray that you would, in these moments, allow any of us who have been just kind of stuck this last week to receive that truth that I'm a son of the Most High God. I am a daughter of the Most High King. And because that's true, I, I don't have to live in any other reality than that one. So God, I pray that you would give us the grace to receive the gift of truth that you give and that you would give us the grace to live uh, in accordance with that reality. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Today we're continuing our series, God at Work, and today we're talking about what does it mean to find joy at work. Thank you. So yesterday, my seven-year-old daughter asked me to make her breakfast, and so uh, I made her scrambled eggs, and as we took out the egg carton, we opened it up, I was surprised to see that there was a, a scripture verse that was printed on the inside of the box that said, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So I showed it to my, my daughter, and I said, hey, can you... Can you find the Bible verse that's in there? And she, she found it and she read it to me. And then she sat down and I proceeded to make her eggs. And because I wanted some too, I put, I put cheese in them. I didn't tell her. So when I brought her a plate, uh, she started eating. I go, hey, can you, do you know that I put like a secret ingredient in there? I go, do you know what it is? And she thought for a moment and she said, is it the Bible verse? <laughs> like that's, that's my daughter. She's like, was there, was there something magical about the eggs? Like there's a verse that goes with us. And I think that sometimes when we think about work, especially when we think about faith at work, some of us say, oh, um, if I'm somebody who's living out my faith at work, I have to have like, I, I have to do my work at a cube that is slathered with post-it notes that have scriptures on them. That, that must mean what it means to live out faith at work. And sometimes I think that uh, we, we make it a little bit more complex than it needs to be. Sometimes living out our faith at work is just as simple as saying, God, you have laced this joy experience, you have laced this work experience with joy Will you help me find it? You've already put joy into this experience. Will you help me to see it? Because sometimes I have trouble finding it on my own. 
When we understand that God wants us to find joy and choose joy in our work, we can view our entire work experience differently. And remember, we're defining work is that space that we engage in on a regular basis and complete tasks for some form of compensation. So for many of us, our work site isn't necessarily an office or a factory or a hospital. Our work site is a school because we're a student and the work that is before us is learning. And then others of us, we're, we're, we live out our work at home. And so our, our work site is our place of residence and our tasks are tasks that set up our family to, to thrive and to flourish. 3,000 years ago, King Solomon recorded his reflections on joy, work, and faith. And this is what he has to say. He says, ultimately, joy is found in these zones. When we understand the power of destiny, when we understand the power of community, when we understand the importance of legacy, destiny, community, legacy. Listen to these words. He says, what do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. So just before these verses, Solomon has said, hey, there's a time for everything. There's a time for sowing. There's a time for reaping. There's a time for rejoicing. There's a time for mourning. And he's saying, no matter what time it is, this is what we do know, that at the end of that chapter, God will have made something beautiful. So God's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. I know that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. So this is, this is the truth of destiny at work. God invites us to choose satisfaction over success. God invites us to choose satisfaction over success. God makes everything, including our work, beautiful in time. God sees the long view. He sees the arc of our lives from beginning to end. And because God has set eternity in our hearts, we intuitively know that work is not the end-all, be-all of our existence. Sometimes there's drama at work because people don't believe that God has set eternity in our hearts. And the sum total of their worth, of their value, of their contribution to society is what happens when they're in their workspace. And as a result, when we think that way, we put undue pressure on our clients, our customers, our bosses, our supervisors, our industry to give us worth and significance and value rather than finding it in the person of Jesus Christ and in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Solomon reminds us that God wires us for both joy and productivity. Listen to verse 12 again. He says, there is nothing better than to be happy and do good while we live. God's gift is that we might find satisfaction in all our toil. I love that Solomon's candid. He doesn't say it's not hard work. He calls it toil. But he says that God gives us satisfaction in it. Work satisfaction, therefore, isn't dependent on external circumstances. Soul satisfaction at the office doesn't hinge on bosses and benefits. It's a gift that God and God alone gives. And when we have eyes to see that it's a gift, we can open up our hands to receive it. It means that on the whole, we can look back at experiences, even though not every task was enjoyable or every day was perfect, we can look back on the whole and say, that season, that experience, that opportunity was a gift from God. 
I started my first job when I was in elementary school. I was a paper person, a paper child. It used to be a paper boy for the Chicago Tribune. And most days it was mind-numbingly boring. But about a few years into it, I started to realize as I could appreciate world events because this was before the internet was invented and people got their news on a thing called a newspaper. I started to realize that I had, a, I had a unique role to fulfill in people's understanding of what was going on in the world. And I'll never forget, in December of 1991, I was in high school, and I got a chance to tell people uh, through, through my little act of throwing paper on their doorstep that the Soviet Union had collapsed. And at the end of that day, I realized that I was a part of like literally delivering history into people's lives. And at that day, when I like rolled my 10-speed bike back into the driveway, I go, I think, I think I did something that mattered. I think I did something that was good. And I believe that when we have the right perspective on work, we understand that God has wired us to experience satisfaction in those moments. And if I'm not experiencing satisfaction in those moments, it might not be God's fault. It might mean that something is flawed in my perspective or my understanding. Listen to verse 22. He says, I saw that there was nothing better than for a person to enjoy their work because that's their lot. That's their destiny. God has hardwired them for it. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Solomon is saying there's a time for everything. And in this time, in this season, God has me in this role. And part of my lot, part of my responsibility, part of my calling is to enjoy it. That said, if you are chronically miserable at your work, you may require a course correction. If you're chronically miserable in your work, you may require a course correction. Now, before you go jumping jobs, consider this. Is there something that God wants to teach you in the crucible of your current work that if you jump to another job, you'll just have to learn it there? I had one buddy who said, I'm, I'm done with this place. I'm going to go somewhere else. And his counselor said, he goes, you're welcome to do that. Just know that all the problems that you had here will follow you there because they are attached to you. Sometimes people say, I can't wait to get out of this place. Like, I, I don't like these clients. I don't like these. I don't like my boss. I don't like this, that, or the other thing. Somebody once said this. He goes, do you know what all the difficult people in your life have in common? You. You are what all the difficult people in your life have in common. So sometimes we think, well, if I, if I just kind of jump ship, I'll have a better environment elsewhere. But the truth is, some of us, before we start asking if there's something wrong with our work environment, we need to ask ourselves this question. Is there something that God wants to teach the worker in this work environment, namely me? Now, that said, if you are in a work environment that is becoming dangerous to the well-being of your soul, if you are being asked to compromise your values, if you are being lured into violating your own sense of integrity, you must press pause immediately. Proverbs 10.9 says this, whoever walks with, in, walks with integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. No employment anywhere ever is worth your honor. Before I had the privilege of interviewing and ultimately accepting this role at Central, I had an interviewer in another job opportunity tell me this. What you are currently being paid to do is out of alignment with what you are gifted to do and what you're passionate about doing. And I'll never forget this. He looked me dead in the eye and says, if you do not change gears soon, you risk having a character meltdown that will not only affect you, but it will destroy the people that you love. 
I took that to heart immediately. And even though this opportunity didn't immediately materialize, I started dusting off my resume and was only able to be open to this amazing place because somebody had told me the truth about where my integrity might be at risk. I wasn't being asked to do anything illegal, but I was being asked to do things that were out of alignment with how God wired me and what I ultimately believed and valued. Sometimes we feel like we have to choose between integrity and financial security. Sometimes we feel trapped between honoring our moral compass and being able to pay our mortgage. This is why when you enter the workforce, it's best for you to set aside some money in your budget, some, like what some financial counselors will call an emergency fund. I called it a walk-away fund. Would I be able to walk? Do I, do I have enough in savings to cover a couple of months of living expenses to walk away from this job and find a new one should circumstances require me to do so? Proverbs 11.3 says, the integrity of the upright guides them. And sometimes your integrity will guide you right out the door. If you feel like something about your work environment is toxic and unhealthy for your soul, it's important to get feedback from people that you trust and ask God to give you the wisdom to make your next move. Life's too short to be stuck. Especially when God's destiny for us is that we find satisfaction in our work. We find joy in work, whether it's office work, housework, schoolwork, when we realize that God has wired us to experience satisfaction in it. We find joy in our work when we realize the power of community that God often avails us in our workplaces. God doesn't just invite us to experience satisfaction over only the pursuit of success. God invites us to choose a sense of team and well-being over ourselves. Work can be challenging. Life can be challenging. It's better to face challenges with a team than it is for you to do it alone. Listen to what Solomon says in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, verse 7. He goes, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There's no end to his toil. And yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Solomon's saying, you can, pack, you can stack up piles of money. Because if you don't have anybody to share it with, then what, what's it for? Then he says this, two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Let me ask this question. How many of you have ever heard this passage read at a wedding? Anybody heard this one at a wedding, a few of us? It's great. I think all the principles in here certainly apply to a partnership in a home. But what's the original context of this verse? It's work. Solomon says, to reserve, re, re, get a good return on their labor. Have you ever been in an environment where you've been struggling at a task all on your own? It is miserable. In, in some instances, it can even be damaging to your physical safety. When I was a camp counselor after my first year of college, I was working at a Christian camp in southern Missouri, and we had this little, little weight bench underneath the shed. Well, everybody had different staggered uh, times off. So a lot of times you wouldn't have like a workout buddy. And I remember one time I was benching. I did it 20 years ago. I know it doesn't look like I do it anymore because I don't. I was, try, I was trying to bench these free weights, and I, 
I got like about into my eighth rep and I got halfway in there. And guys, you, you, you ever know there's that point of no return when you're benching and you're like, you're either gonna make it or you're not. And I knew that I wasn't gonna make it. And so I just kind of let it rest right here on my sternum. Um, and that was fiercely uncomfortable. And then I started rolling it down my abdomen and I knew that I was running out of places to go before things got dangerous and life-threatening. And I was like, little help. Everybody ever heard that from the gym, like a far corner of the gym, little help. Because nobody ever wants to ask for help at the beginning, which is the wise and godly thing to do. Everybody wants to wait till their emergency to ask for help. God is saying what? God is saying, I have wired you to do work, not alone. I've wired you to do work in community because it's safer that way. It's smarter that way. And quite frankly, it is more enjoyable that way. And a gentleman come up to me after the first service. He goes, I I'm an artist. He goes, if I have people work with me, I don't get my work done. I'm not saying that there are tasks that get done best in solitude. I'm saying that the general environment of our work includes a dimension of community. I recently saw a post where someone said, I love my work, I hate my boss. Now given, sometimes there are challenging power dynamics at the office, but hope can sometimes lie in a great team. If you've ever been an employee or an athlete, you know that you can work around a negative supervisor if you have people around you who help you keep your head above water. People can navigate all sorts of challenging circumstances when they love the people they do it with. Two weeks ago, I offered to visit any one of you at Central who would invite me, as my schedule allowed, to visit you at your place of work. And there is one image that I took away from every single environment that you brought me to, and that was this, your joy. Your joy. Every workplace that I went to, and I got a chance to see um, manufacturing. I went, got a chance to see a factory and a design firm and saw somebody visit, work, working at their fast food place. All sorts of different environments. And everywhere that I went, I saw joy. I saw joy. Many of you, the people at Central, it's not that you love what you, only that you love what you do. You love who you do it with. This became abundantly clear to me during our small group. Kelly and I had the privilege of being in a, a six-week six C6 study group in the last series. And over every time our group gathered for prayer, two of the people in our group, Dave had a colleague and another guy by the name of Steve had a colleague whose son, both, both of these individuals are struggling at work with very serious illnesses. And you were bringing them before God in prayer, saying, I, I care about these people I want God to intervene in the midst of their nightmare. And many of you are loving the people in your places of work as if they were your own family. And it's a testament to your character and your compassion and your kindness. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. I have two suggestions for how to live out this principle of rejoicing with the rejoicers and mourning with the mourners. The first one is this. It's show up for cake. Every time there's cake, show up. Why? Because if there's cake in a break room or if there's a lunch offsite, usually somebody is celebrating a milestone in your life. Now, one of my friends, Davey, took me to his plant and they're in their break room. He says, there's not a day that goes by, given the critical mass of people who work here, where there's not cake. I'm not saying you have to eat cake every single time. I am saying that when there's cake, show up. Why? Because if we fail to be present when people are celebrating their positive milestones, we forfeit the right to be trusted when they're suffering the negative ones. 
Have you ever noticed that like if the bottom falls out in your life and somebody who has never been a part of anything good that's happened shows up, you appreciate the gesture, but you're not, you're not gonna be fully present and vulnerable with that person. But if somebody has championed you on your best days and they show up with you when you're weeping on your worst, you tend to trust that person, right? They have earned the right to step into that challenge. So my encouragement to you is whenever there's cake, show up to affirm what awesome event is happening in that person's life, whether it's a kid's graduation or a new baby or a graduate or a retirement party, whatever it is, show up. Set, make the consistent and proactive gesture of celebrating when there's something to celebrate. Because whatever relational equity you win in showing up for cake time far outweighs the 15 minutes of productivity that you may have missed by being there. So show up for cake. And then the second one is this is budget for flowers. When we mourn with those who mourn, it's important for us to budget for flowers. Some of us have the ability to actually put in a line in a discretionary budget that says, hey, we're going to budget this month, this much every year to support people who have bereavement. And some people are like, hey, I don't have the option to do that. We just, we just kind of pass the plate when we're at the office so that we can support people who are in crisis. I can't tell you how many times I've been to a funeral and seen a floral arrangement. It didn't necessarily have to be the biggest one that was there, but without fail, I know, I know how well somebody was loved at the office by the floral arrangement that has a card that's saying, from all of your friends at so-and-so, from all the people at such-and-such. I can't, can't tell you how inspiring it is to, to stand on the stage when you officiate a funeral and look out to a full crowd and have somebody later tell you that this whole section, these whole four pews were filled with friends from the office who came to care for me when I lost somebody that I loved. See, our work isn't just, as our lead pastor Craig Reese said last week, it's not just about what we do, it's who we do it for, but I would venture to add that it's also about who we do it with and how we carry ourselves when we're around those people. People who appreciate the beauty of community in their workplace experience more joy than people who don't. So if you want to find work joy-filled, if you want to find work satisfying, then understand your destiny, that God desires you to find satisfaction in it. Understand the beauty of community, that God has strategically placed you in and around a group of people that he's calling you to love and to elevate and inspire and encourage. And then finally, understand the power of legacy. Understand the power of legacy. God invites us to choose influence over control. God invites us to choose influence over control. We want to believe that if we work well, we create systems that will live on after us. But the sad truth is, once we step out of our current role, we have little control of what happens in our absence. I had the great joy of being able to start a church in my mid-20s, and I served there as the lead pastor for eight years. And I finally got to a spot where I realized that I had taken this group of people about, about as far as I could go and it was time for me to move on. And I secretly hoped that my successor, somebody that I knew, that I had developed, that I had kind of handpicked until the elder, and the elders still needed to do their thing, but I would, I would have chosen him to do it. My hope is that he would follow the unwritten script that I left behind me. He did not, and that's okay. <laughs> See, some of us seem like the, the whole... Our, our whole story is based on what people think about us or whether people follow our game plans when we're gone. And our worth is not derived from what happens in environments we can't control. 
Our worth, again, rests firmly in the hands of Jesus. And he calls us to give our best while we're there and when we're not there, to let it go. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13 says this, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They can take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Make no mistake, because God has set eternity in our hearts, we know that our legacy and our place of work, our legacy and our career and our vocation is not what we can carry out of that office in our hands. It's what we carry with us in our hearts. In the 2002 film About Schmidt, Jack Nicholson plays Warren Schmidt, an actuary for a life insurance company in Omaha, Nebraska. In the first scenes of the movie, we, re- we learn that Warren is retiring, and after his office retirement party, after the cake, he offers to teach his young successor the ropes of his job. He carefully shows the new guy all of his systems and files and boxes of notes. Later in that day, as he's exiting the office for the very last time, briefcase in hand, out of the corner of his eye, he sees the company dumpster, and to his horror, what should he find next to it but all of the boxes that summarized everything that he had done over the last 40 years that he had been there. His life's work tossed away like an old napkin, and his heart sinks because it feels like it was all for nothing. For many of us, as we end a season of work at one particular employer or as we seek to wrap down our paid careers for good, the temptation is to work that much harder to stay relevant, even to our own detriment or the detriment of others. How many of you have been in a business where somebody hung on longer than they should have and in so doing wore out their welcome and created more work and more drama and more chaos for the people who would succeed them. In her recent book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin describes how U.S. presidents often struggled to adjust to civilian life after holding the nation's highest office. Theodore Roosevelt's daughter Alice said of him that he so fiercely craved being at the center of the action that he wanted to be the baby at the baptism, the bride at the wedding, and the corpse at the funeral. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20 says this, This is what I have observed to be good. It's appropriate for a person to eat, drink, and here it is again, find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. I don't think that he's saying that this is their lot fatalistically. Like, oh, you're stuck with this and you got to make do. But say like, no, this is the gift that God has given you in this season. You have the opportunity to enjoy it or to not. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, they accept their lot and be happy in their toil. This is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Listen to that again. God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. 
So we can choose to strive for control at the office, or we can try to steward the relational influence, the equity with others that God has given us while we're there. And I've learned the hard way that when I strive for control, I suck the air out of every room I walk into. But when I try to steward my wisdom and my relational influence and the people that God has brought into the mix, I can free others to do the work even better than I could have done it. A few years ago, there was a storied NFL franchise who took a first-round draft pick of a, of a new quarterback. And the, that team already had a Hall of Fame quarterback on the roster. And that veteran player had a choice to make whether he was going to invest in this rookie who would one day take his job or to keep his distance, knuckle down, and seek to protect his record on his own. And unfortunately for that athlete, he chose the latter. And the irony is that the man that he refused to invest in will be a Hall of Famer as well. So many of us, we have to decide whether or not we're going to try to kind of white-knuckle our current experience out of fear and insecurity, or whether we're going to open up our hands and realize that our legacy is not in our accolades or our achievements. Our legacy lies in people that we invested in, mentored, coached, and encouraged to be the absolute best versions of themselves. A few years ago, I was visiting a friend who was doing ministry at a Another, another very significant metropolitan area, and his church had just built just an amazing structure. They had a very successful capital campaign and built, built a pretty, pretty amazing and imposing building. And he said this to me, and I'll never forget it. He goes, just think, Steve, this building will be here in 100 years. This building will be here in 100 years. And I remember thinking, as what? A mall? Like a movie theater? Condos? Just because we built an amazing, beautiful building and we trust that God will do it for great things doesn't mean that our work is done. The question isn't what did we build? The question is what kind of culture did we create? So that whether or not our ministry catapulted into the stratosphere after we left or whether it imploded two days after we walked out the door, what legacy in human hearts did we leave behind us? We can strive for control or we can steward our influence. We can obsess with anxiety or we can be occupied with gladness. Solomon says, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Where does gladness of heart come from when we think about legacy? Gladness comes when we speak value into the people around us, when we model Christ for them in our attitude and in our ethics, and when we help people around us believe that they matter, that their influence is significant, and that we help them sharpen their skill set to be the best they can be. I believe God wants you to find satisfaction at your work. I believe that it's part of your destiny. I believe that God wants you to elevate the kind of community that he has provided for you at work. I believe that there's joy there. And I believe that God is giving you younger people in your field for you to enrich and encourage because that's the most important part of your legacy that you'll leave. So the question isn't, is there joy out there? The, the question is, will I receive the joy that God has already given some of you are familiar with the verse in the book of Nehemiah where he says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. 
And you're going to hear this a little bit more in the winter when we have a whole series. Our next C6 series is going to be about the life of Nehemiah. But the work that he was calling people to do was arduous. He was asking them to build a wall in the middle of a combat zone. He was asking them to risk their resources and their lives for a task that was bigger than they were. He wasn't just asking them to kind of, kind of do something that was insignificant. And God is asking you to do something that matters in your life and in your world and in your work as well. And if you're tired, know this. God wants to give you his strength. And that strength comes in the shape of joy that cannot be dictated and it cannot be molded and cannot be hijacked by circumstances, but remains steady all throughout.